This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Finally, it's that time again, as I welcome you all back to Signals to Danger. I'm sure you know this by now, but my name is Dan, and though I love making this podcast, in my day-to-day life, I do manage to hold down a job within the UK rail industry. But I've been away a while. Life finds a way of getting in the way, and other things have taken priority, headspace has been a little limited, but here we are again, with new episodes on the way once more. I've decided with this return to keep the introductions short, unless I've got something important to say Well, you might be here to listen to me ramble, but I'm sure it's the actual episode that you want that rambling focused on. Now, we've just switched over to Acast for our podcast hosting, so hopefully, if everything's gone right and I've set it up correctly, this has gotten out to all of you, so you can hear it. The only thing I'll quickly say is to thank those of you who support the podcast for your ongoing backing, especially with the reasonably large break in the production. But with that said, it is time to move into this week's episode And it is episode 37. That's right, I'm dropping the idea of seasons for now. We are paying a visit this time to the suburbs of Greater Manchester, specifically the town of Eccles. from ITN with Leonard Parkin. 
Hello, good afternoon. There's been a train crash near Manchester. At least two people are dead and 70 have been taken to hospital. The Liverpool to Scarborough Express had set off from Merseyside only minutes before the crash. It ploughed into the back of a freight train carrying gas and oil at Weast, a suburb of Salford. Part of the wreckage caught fire and it took more than 100 firemen to get it under control. 30 ambulances took the injured to three hospitals in the area. This is the way that people across the north of England, and indeed the country, began to find out about another train crash which had taken place on our nation's rail network. But not those who lived around Manchester city centre on the 4th of December 1984. For those people, something different announced the disaster. For them, a thick, black pall of smoke hanging in the morning air was the announcement that something terrible had taken place. On the outskirts of the city, just four miles from Victoria Station, a passenger train heading from Liverpool to Scarborough via Manchester, Leeds and York had somehow collided with a goods train composed of tankers containing oil. This was once again a dark stain on the history of the railway. But before we get into this story, it's worth recognising something about our setting. This part of the world is actually fairly prominent in railway history and the accident at Eccles forms only one chapter of this tale. Liverpool to Manchester. Two cities, both industrial and commercial centres, both home to proud populations and indeed a rich history all of their own. Separated by only 30 miles, linking these two conurbations has always been seen to be important. In the world of the Industrial Revolution, these cities became hubs of business and business is of course best managed by bringing people together especially in a world predating Teams, Zoom and instant messaging. In 1830, this need for connection led to the adaptation of what at the time was a brand new technology, the railway. Now, I'm not going to get into a complete origin of the railway's tangent here. There's plenty of books and indeed other podcasts on the subject, and I could, well, I could probably fill an entire episode with what would be a very potted history. But it is fairly undisputed that the world's very first intercity railway was the Liverpool to Manchester, connecting those two industrious northern cities. So I must admit, I'm not surprised at the location. Now, I do use the word intercity very carefully there, as there have been other ventures into the world of rail transportation prior, including the Stockton to Darlington Railway in the northeast. And as a Teesside lad for the first 20 years of my life, and still at heart, I hasten to add, There's definitely an East Coast leaning when people dispute what we should really call the first railway, but I won't dwell too much on that. In any case, when the carriage doors of the Liverpool to Manchester Railway opened on the 15th of September 1830, it ushered in a new era, and from that moment went on from strength to strength. Although I feel it's important to add at this point that I wouldn't be able to do this podcast justice without briefly mentioning the tragic death of MP William Huskinson, struck down and fatally wounded by George Stevenson's rocket locomotive. Such was the success of the LM that from the point that the option became available, people flocked to use the railway to travel between these two cities. And over time, the line continued to achieve other honours, including that of being the first line to be entirely double-tracked throughout its length, the first to have a true signalling system, first to be fully timetabled, and the first to carry mail, or at least that's what a peruse of a Wikipedia article would tell us, although I hasten to add, not the only source I use while researching this podcast. In fact, to this day, 
Liverpool to Manchester remains one of the busiest passenger flows in the north, and rail has developed since 1830 in order to accommodate that demand. At the peak of connectivity, there eventually grew to be four separate routes between the two city regions. Um, the variety of options available did decline a bit over recent history, with the northernmost of those via Wigan severed by a need to change onto Mersey Rail services at Kirkby, and the southernmost via Altrincham and Widnes seeing large chunks of the line abandoned. Which leaves us with two, a northern route and a southern route. The southern route runs from Liverpool-Lime Street via Warrington Central to Manchester Piccadilly, and that's what we know as the Cheshire Lines Committee, or the CLC. But that's not the one that we're particularly concerned about this episode. The other is the route of the original railway, and that explains the last five minutes or so of tangential rambling. And you might be surprised that this original line is still in use today. But don't think for a second that there hasn't been some considerable upgrades over the previous two centuries, such as electrification. The line is named for a large peat bog, the Chat Moss. This bog, which sits five miles to the west of Manchester, and which actually threatened the construction of the line altogether, almost killing the railway revolution before it took place, Stevenson's solution was to float the line on a bed of bound heather and branches, topped with tar and covered with rubble stone. But it is this line the route from Liverpool to Manchester via the Chatmos, which played host to the disaster that took place in 1984, 154 years after trains had first begun to make the journey, and while it's always pleasant to take a stroll through the history of the network, now it's time for us to focus in on the story that we are here to tell. Today's story starts, as with so many of our tales, with a train driver, G.P. Matthews of Warrington. On the morning of the 4th, he found himself climbing up into the cab of his locomotive for what he thought would be an entirely normal day, as so many were, although normal in the context of the railway is sometimes a relative term. Matthews was today in charge of 6 Echo 85, not a prestigious passenger train destined to whip up and down the main line at breakneck speeds, carrying important people from A to B, but one of the less glamorous visitors to the network, a freight train, an essential component for keeping the country going. Echo 85 was a tanker train carrying liquid around the country, much in the way that our veins and arteries carry blood around our bodies to where it's needed. And it wasn't a small one. The first 10 vehicles of the train were known as TTA tanks, which are two axle vehicles, capable of holding 45 tonnes of liquid, and the last five were the larger versions, the TTE tanks. Those were mounted on two bogies and held 100 tonnes each. And each of these tanks was filled with a, well, a highly combustible fluid, gas oil. This does sound relatively dramatic, but it's fairly par for the course, and generally a very safe endeavour. Bulk freight deliveries are one of the areas where rail really excels, Low rolling resistance, the ability to haul long trains with multiple wagons, means that one freight loco can essentially take countless lorries off the road, requiring that one driver and a guard, instead of a fleet of fellas with their own working hours, their own brakes, and most importantly, 
their own pay packets. Not to mention, it's widely accepted that road transport is less safe than rail by an order of magnitude. And oil is very much one of those things which really lends itself to transportation by rail. And when we take it by rail, it's carried in tank wagons, just like the ones on Matthew's train. Six Echo 85 started its journey at Stanlow Oil Refinery on Merseyside, which coincidentally is currently the second largest refinery in the UK, responsible for a sixth of the country's petrol needs. So not a small operation. And I think we can all recognise that the value of the contents leaving these types of locations can be relatively high. The cab which Matthews climbed into was that of a Class 47 locomotive. Certainly not a rare loco at the time, one of over 500 made, and seen up and down the country hauling food, fuel, goods and even passengers on their travels. Together with the tankers, this led to a train of just over a thousand tonnes at his command, and shortly after 9am, he took power and started to take the train out on its journey towards the other northern city of Leeds. Now, driving freight trains is a different beast to carrying passengers, and quite often drivers and their charges will find themselves sat at signals or in passing loops waiting for passenger trains, either expresses or locals, to pass them by. They find themselves sort of threaded between these trains, often taking longer, more convoluted routes between stops to either work around the passenger timetables or to account for requirements in route availability or loading gauge. We have discussed loading gauge before, that's the physical space the train fills in its own cross-section, both stationary or while it's moving, which we refer to as dynamic loading gauge. But I don't think we've discussed route availability. So let's go on on one of our wee tangents. Route availability, or RA, is a grading system which all lines and their associated infrastructure, like bridges or embankments, are given, ranging from 1 to 10. RA is also given to all rolling stock authorised for use on the network, and it's those gradings which define whether there is a compatibility between the two, because not all railway is created equally. The route availability for a line is calculated by taking into account things like bridge strength, track condition, structural issues, so on and so forth. And a route availability of 1, so RA1, well that's the most restricted line, open to possibly only one type of locomotive specifically designed for it. A route availability of 10 is the most open usable by any locomotive that fits within the loading gauge for the line making sure there's no conflicts with things like platforms or line-side infrastructure. Vehicles, like I said, they also have an RA number, and that's mostly based on their actual weight, or the amount of weight from the vehicle which is transferred down through each individual axle on the vehicle. With an RA of 3, for example, being less than or equal to 16.5 tonnes, going up to an RA of 10, being less than or equal to 25.4 tonnes. So I'm sure you get the idea. The crux of the matter is, a rail vehicle with an RA of 8 can't operate on a line with an RA of 6, only 8, 9 and 10. Tangents have probably turned into a bit of a tradition on this podcast, but I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that this one has reached its terminating station. Restrictions such as gauge and RA are two of the reasons freights can be given those more roundabout routes, but the larger issue is probably when operating over these routes is working around the timetable of other services, this uncomfortable facet of working freight services explains why although Matthews had started his journey from Stanlow at 9am, driving a Class 47 capable of running comfortably at 75 miles an hour, 
An hour and a half later, he found himself only 33 miles away. In fact, as the crow flies, he was only 25 miles away from where he started. Sounds a bit like a journey on the M62. For those of you who are listening in the north, I'm sure you'll appreciate that reference. Matthews was bringing his train slowly along the line into the centre of Manchester, just at the point where the newly built M602 motorway pulled directly alongside the railway line. He was gradually moving along with the train as he was passed from signal box to signal box. This area on the approach to Manchester was signalled with absolute block signalling, which is a system that we've discussed before, but in essence it means that each signaller is responsible for a section and he passes trains along from one section to the next. The way this is done means that each signaller first asks if the next section is clear, and only when he knows it is, does he clear his signals to allow a train to proceed along the line. And this is exactly what was taking place on the morning of the 4th of December. 6 Echo 85 had been making its way eastbound and eventually came to a stand at the section signal at Barton Hill Box, awaiting it to clear so that he could head down to the next box on the line, Eccles. Matthews left the signal at Barton Hill when it cleared, continued down through the section of Eccles, and then eventually found himself brought to a stand at a signal alongside the motorway. A normal morning on a normal journey, a fairly mundane day by all accounts, but all of this was about to dramatically change. At this point, we need to take a step away from Matthews and his train and swoop away from Eccles down to the other end of the Chat Moss to the west and introduce one Echo 87, not a freight this time, but a passenger service. The train which sat in the platform of Liverpool's Lime Street station was very different to those that had originally made the journey between two cities, carrying passengers right back at the opening of the line. Those were wooden, open-topped carriages, which were, in all fairness, far closer to their horse-drawn namesake than the rail vehicles we're used to today. Passengers on one Echo 87 were about to embark in either one of six class, second-class British Rail Mark II coaches or a first-class Mark I coach. Alongside them, but not open to passengers, was a brake parcels coach to the rear of the train. These vehicles were much closer to what we're used to seeing nowadays in terms of both size and construction, at just over 20 metres in length with four wheel sets mounted across two bogies. With just shy of 1,900 of these coaches constructed, they were a regular sight across the network and had been since the mid-1960s. Admittedly, that's less so nowadays and it's likely, well, you'll only see these on charter trains or a few yellow safety versions being used as brake force carriages on network rail's test trains. Perhaps the biggest difference between the initial trains of 1830 and this point, however, is what you would find at the head of the train. 
To take an example from the early days of rail, we could look at, well, the infamous rocket. Admittedly, a very early development, rocket weighed a grand total of just over four tonnes, capable of an eye-watering top speed of 30 miles an hour, and producing 825 pounds-feet of tractive force or tractive effort, a general way of describing the pushing or pulling capacity of a locomotive. Very different to the Class 45 locomotive, which could be found at the head of Echo 79, 45147. Class 45s, known as Peaks, were built between 1960 and 1962 and were an entirely different beast. Powered by diesel and not boiling water, the Peaks weighed in at 133 tonnes with a top speed of 90 and the, well, the 825 pound-feet rocket demonstrated of tractive effort was compared to the Peaks 55,000. Clearly, technology had progressed somewhat over that century and a half. But maybe it's time to draw the comparisons to a close because it's clear that by the mid-80s we were looking at a much more modern railway, far more akin to what we're used to nowadays. The 45s had originally been designed for the Midland Main Line, carting punters between the capital and Nottingham and Sheffield, though with the introduction of high-speed trains onto the route, they found themselves relegated to the secondary routes and became a regular feature on the North Transpennine route between Liverpool and the East Coast, connecting Leeds, York, Newcastle and Huddersfield. In fact, they became so prominent on this route that when the games producer, Dovetail Games, released a route covering the Northern Transpennine for their game, Trains in World, they included a 45 in the pack. The locals were distinctive due to their short-nosed cab design, similar to many early diesels, such as the Deltics or the Class 37, where the cab window is set back a little bit from the actual front of the loco, with an almost bonnet-like aesthetic. We are talking Transpennine in this case in relation to the route and not the modern-day franchise or operator, though. When we talk about Transpennine rail routes, however... For quite some time, one of the key routes has been from Liverpool to Scarborough, taking passengers from the West Coast Port City to the East Coast Resort, stopping along the way to pick up and drop off in Manchester, West Yorkshire and York, and then continuing up to, well, candy floss, sand and hopefully some sun. Indeed, it was this route in particular that one Echo 79 found itself on that morning, the train was in the platforms at Liverpool Lime Street Station, ready for a departure at 5 past 10 in the morning, a little over an hour after Matthews had departed Stanlow. And at the controls was driver Croxford. 36 years old, had been on the railway for a little while, first training as a driver between 1975 and 1976. And over his time, he'd worked out of a couple of depots, but in June of 84, he transferred to Liverpool Lime Street Station, where he was now working. Croxford had booked onto his shift at 7 o'clock that morning, but didn't have any duties assigned. He was on a spare turn where drivers arrive and workers required to help facilitate the running of the service. Specifically, he was on a turn that was known as the ferry set. Drivers on this turn were generally used to run empty stock up and down to the depot when trains needed to enter or leave service. It became apparent that morning that the man rostered to drive the 1005 Scarborough had been detained on other duties, so the train crew screw supervisor took a stroll down to the mess room where he found Croxford sitting with others. He was happy to take the train and asked where he might find it. And in turn, when the time came, he walked down to the platforms, climbed up to the cab and prepared for departure. 
At 10.05, Croxford started his own journey, pulling away from Liverpool's Lime Street station and heading out into the city of Liverpool. Well, rather into the tunnels that left the city of Liverpool. With priority in the signalling that Matthews would not have enjoyed, and a substantially lighter train, they made good time, passing through Edge Hill, the eastern suburbs of Liverpool, and out across the Chat Moss towards Manchester, rapidly approaching the city on the same line that Matthews had recently joined on his journey. And this is the point that our tale of two drivers becomes one story. By around half past ten, both trains were travelling along the line towards the city, with Matthews one train ahead of Croxford. And as we mentioned earlier, this line, approaching Manchester, still utilised in that section absolute block signalling, with the signal boxes passing trains from one to the next. And that brings our focus to one box in particular, Barton Hill. Manning the box at Barton Hill was Signalman Pope, and at 10.26 he offered Matthews' freight train forward to Eccles, the next box along the line, and the train was accepted. By this point, Croxford's train was directly behind Matthews, with he and his train of passengers following the tanks through the signal sections. So a few minutes later, at 10.30, Pope received a bell signal from Astley, the box back towards Liverpool, which offered him the Scarborough Express. With Matthews moved on, and a clear section of track in front of him, he accepted the train, and as a result the Scarborough was given signals to enter his section. Around a minute later, he offered the express forward to Eccles, and from the box there, the train was accepted. So at this point, nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so Pope cleared his signals to allow the train to proceed on towards Manchester. A little ways down the track in the Eccles box, another signalman, Alan, was on his own turn of duty. He accepted the offer of 1 Echo 79 at 10.32. He couldn't clear his own signals, however, at this point, as he hadn't been told that the next section along the line was clear. And that's the reason absolute block signalling exists. A signaller isn't allowed to pass the train along or even offer it to the next box until he's told the line is clear. This was one of the great things about the introduction of absolute block. It required agreement, consultation between two signallers, which ensured that movements were safe. Checks and balances. As such, when Alan accepted the Scarborough Express, he was only accepting it to proceed as far as the home signal outside his signal box, which remained at danger. And the signals between him and the approaching Scarborough train would tell Croxford he'd need to prepare to bring his train to a stand. Shortly after accepting the train, Alan got a phone call. The distance signal, which he also controlled, giving permission for trains to proceed to the next section, was being held at danger because of an issue earlier in the day, but we'll get back to that later. That call was from Matthews, at the head of his tank train, asking permission to proceed, permission which Alan granted. This meant the tanker train was continuing its journey into the city, and as it soon as it passed into the next section, the signaller there would inform him, and he could offer Croxford's train along the line. Or this is as things should have taken place. I said it earlier, and it should have, as it should have been in this situation, the home signal outside the signal box at the station itself was held at danger to protect the line in the rear of it. Alan knew this, he knew how it had been set, and there was no concerns here. At the point that Alan was on the phone to Matthews, however, he saw the track circuit for his berth light up. This was part of a system of track circuit monitoring, which was a development in signal which provided signals with information about where on their section of line trains were. 
It expanded the visual range of signalers and provided useful real-time information, which is what was happening here. This light was telling Alan where Croxford's train was, and in this case the indicator was showing that the block outside his signal box at the station was occupied, which in practice meant that the Scarborough train would be coming up to his box, slowly approaching to stop at the danger signal. This is what Alan thoroughly expected to see, and what he would have seen on any other time when the signal was set to danger. He stepped back to look, and to his horror he saw the train speed past his signal box, passing it at the normal speed for a non-stop train. While the train should have been gently rolling up to the signal outside, it was actually travelling between 50 and 60 miles an hour. Alan knew enough about the situation which was rapidly unfolding to know what was going to happen next. The facts that were clear to him were this. Croxford was travelling at close to line speed. The one signal which was telling him the line was blocked and he needed to stop was the one he'd just driven his train right past. And more importantly than all of this, he knew that a tanker train full of gas oil was just down the line ahead of Croxford and that he had only just finished giving that driver permission to move the train forwards. The likelihood that Matthews would be up to speed and away by now, all 1,000 tonnes of his train, astronomically tiny. In fact, that's probably too hopeful. It was impossible. His experience meant that for a brief few seconds, the only person who knew what was about to take place was Alan. But it also meant that he knew there was nothing he could do to prevent it now. No time, no possible method he could use to prevent it and so faced with such grim inevitability he did all that he could do he picked up the phone and called the signaller at deal street the next box towards manchester he gave the signal obstruction danger bringing his eyes up from the phone and looking across the box he saw the track circuits on the opposite line flipped to an occupied state and he looked down the, towards the line towards his distant signal a pall of black smoke started to rise above the tracks into the morning sky, confirming the terrible news that he already knew was coming. account of the moments before the accident isn't the only one that exists, but he's probably one of only two people who knew that the collision was going to take place before it physically did. The only other person with any prior warning would have been Croxford, at the head of the Scarborough train as he came upon the rear of the tankers. Unfortunately, only one of the men survived to tell their tale. 1,300 metres beyond the home signal he'd just blown past, Croxford and his train collided with the rear of the freight train. 
exactly in the way that Alan knew it was going to. After receiving permission to proceed, Matthews had managed to get his train up to around 10 miles an hour as he drew away from the signal. But at the point the Scarborough Express caught up with it, it was travelling at around 50. The collision was absolutely inevitable, and although both trains were moving, the fact of the matter is that the difference between the speeds guaranteed that the accident would be violent in its unfolding. As the locomotive at the head of the express connected with the rearmost tanker car, it deflected it off to the right, detaching from the train and ending up across the down main, adjacent to the upline both trains were travelling on. The next wagon, along with the third from the end of the train, reared up with the impact and lost their bogies. One of the barrels of the tanks ended up lying along the roof of the locomotive, with its buffers resting on the end of the other. This impact, strong enough to scatter and throw three 100-tonne oil tankers, inevitably imparted a great deal of force to the locomotive Croxford was travelling in, and this force did a great deal of damage. The front end of the locomotive was all but destroyed and the bulkhead behind the driver's compartment had been driven almost horizontally into the engine compartment, unrecognisable as to how it originally looked. And while the loco took the brunt, the carriages behind did not escape unscathed. The leading coach was upright but had been slewed towards the downline and suffered extensive damage. The next two coaches had also suffered little cosmetic damage and remained upright. But that is not where this crash finished. Following the impact, the contents of the tankers, which had been tossed like toys, came into play. The valves, which prevented gas oil from escaping the tanks, had actually performed admirably in the violence of the crash, and on all three of the affected vehicles, they remained safe and sealed. Unfortunately, the tank barrels themselves didn't fare so well. The impacts and the percussive force of the collision meant that all three of them experienced failure during the action, including that of the tank which lay on top of the locomotive. When you add leaking gas oil, which can ignite without a naked flame at a temperature of 340 degrees, to the exhaust of a locomotive, which can be as warm as 500, and it seems almost inevitable what you'll get as a result. The resulting fire engulfed the locomotive, the three derailed tankers, and critically, the lead passenger coach of the Scarborough train. Greater Manchester Fire Brigade, as it was known before fire and rescue became the commonly accepted term, received their first call at around 10.37 in the morning, minutes after the accident took place, and the two appliances which were originally sent to the scene arrived on the 602 motorway at around 10.41. The presence of the motorway itself, which had only been completed a couple of years earlier, was incredibly important to the emergency response to this incident. Just imagine a wide, accessible stretch of tarmac right next to a crashed train. That's something that responders would have sorely missed at locations of other accidents, such as Grey Rig or Carmont, or, well, in fact, most accidents. When the first firefighters arrived, passengers were still evacuating from the second coach of the Scarborough train, but they didn't see anyone trying to escape the first, or find anybody trapped inside it. Each vehicle, which transports hazardous material, is required to display markings and a distinct number known as a UN number. 
The markings on the tank cars clearly identified the contents as a petroleum fuel product, and so the firefighters in attendance donned protective gear and used foam on the flames. And as the rescue efforts continued, ambulances filtered to and from the accident site and 68 of them were taken to one of three hospitals in Greater Manchester, mostly with cuts and bruises and released later without permanent issues. However, that is not the full tally of the accident. One passenger was killed and a further passenger succumbed to their injuries in hospital nearly a month after the crash. is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for memorial day get 15% off your burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor that's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This investigation began in the same way as so many do, on the scene, in amongst the debris and destruction. And while the emergency services converged, as did the railway and those of us who unpick the dark days. One such attendee was the area permanent way manager, engineer PJ Tillett. He had attended to begin understanding the task of interrogating not the people involved, but the infrastructure. We've talked about the phenomenon of things like witness marks before, and they came into play at Eccles again. The freight train and the passenger train had been travelling on the same line when they collided, specifically the up. And while you might think that the trains themselves would be where the eye would be drawn, Tillett was a P-way man. P-way being a sort of shorthand for permanent way. The infrastructure of the railway is nicely divided into elements in terms of how we talk about them and even the teams that look after them. Each facet is somewhat a specialty, 
and so many of the engineers of the past and indeed the present look after one specific element. So in your average maintenance depot, you might find your P-Way team, the S&C guys, and then the ones who look after the S&T. Meaning, of course, permanent wear, or the rails, ties and sleepers, switches and crossings, so basically points and other crossings types, and signalling and telecommunications, which I think is all fairly self-explanatory now I've gone through it. In any case, Tillett was here to focus on his specialty, the track itself, and he started his look at the scene. A scene which now spread over 355 metres from the leading buffers of Matthews Loco all the way back along the line to the rear of Croxford's last carriage. The signal, which Matthews had been waiting at, ES51, Echo Sierra 51, was by this point 113 metres behind the cab, but as Tillett walked back along the line, past the area that had been burned, the crushed locomotive of the Scarborough train and the smoking wreckage of carriages and tankers, he eventually reached a point 154 metres back towards Eccles Station, and it was here that he found a key piece of evidence which identified a critical point in the accident. He found a dip in the rail, localised and significant, not something that would form under normal operation. Now, this was a £113 heavy flat-bottomed rail, but what Tillett saw before him was a depression about 20 millimetres deep and the radius of a rail vehicle's wheel. To just push a wheel into this metal and leave a mark in this way isn't something you could do without a great deal of force. Exactly the kind of force you'd get when one train crashes into the rear of another. This dent, this depression, that marked the point of the collision. He then continued to walk back towards Eccles, and for the next 162 metres he found two things. Evidence of skid marks along the rails, and a trail of spilt oil between the tracks. The significance of these finds can indicate something about how the train was behaving, in the same way as the depression can tell us where they collided. Let's start with the oil spill. It could have meant a train with a leak passed through this area at some point prior, but context is important, and the knowledge that the industry has about the behaviour of locomotives in certain circumstances comes firmly into play here. Locomotive gear cases at the time had a tendency to spill oil under heavy braking. Heavy braking one might see when a driver was realising he was about to collide with another train, and this tallies absolutely with the presence of skid marks on the rails. But, and it is a significant but, the presence of skidding on the rail doesn't necessarily give us an exact point where braking took place. Skidding can only take place when the wheels lock up, same as in your car, and with the speed that they're turning and their inertia, this wouldn't have taken place immediately. In fact, the investigation highlighted two separate possibilities. The first is that Croxford applied his brakes just prior to the start of the oil spill, when he would have been some 120 metres from the rear of the oil train. The skid marks could then have been made by the locomotive followed by the coach wheels after the impact had occurred, and the oil began to spill from the gear case at the same time. That would mean that the interval between braking starting and the collision could have been six to seven seconds. The second possibility is that he braked earlier and the skid marks were only caused by the locomotive when its speed had been reduced sufficiently for the wheels to lock up. There is a third possibility that the brakes were only applied automatically throughout the train at the moment of collision. That could be discounted by this evidence though because the locomotive must have been braking hard 
to spill oil from its gear case. So where are we now in terms of understanding the reasons for the accident? We can fairly safely say that the train was braking prior to the collision. Skid marks, oil spillage, they indicate this. But clearly it was a tragic case of too little, too late. Another question which we could do with answering at this point is whether the loco could be faulty itself, a faulty braking system. That could account for the late application, couldn't it? Well, the loco had had new brake blocks fitted at Gateshead on the 28th of November and it was passed fit for traffic on the 30th of November. And on the 3rd of December, it had again been returned to the Newton Heath depot for replacement of an aircock on its auxiliary air brake reservoir cylinder. And with all of this work, extensive testing is carried out to make sure that what they've fitted and what they've fixed is working correctly. And in fact, the driver's air brake control from the leading cab was actually found on the motorway, 37 metres before the point where the local finally stopped. When it was found, it was believed that the handle was in the full service position and subsequent tests at Doncaster proved that the valve itself was working correctly. And one way of telling us this is that internally, there is a rapid air flap for use in an emergency when the locomotive's got a vacuum hold, a vacuum brake train behind it. And this flap was open, indicating that the control was probably in the full emergency position before the collision occurred with the caveat that it could have been moved as the handle was ejected from the train. Which I suppose leaves the next question. If the train was functioning as it should, why was the braking undertaken too late? And what cost Croxford and two others their lives? resource to investigators with any investigation is the account of the key parties involved, and the most valuable is normally the driver of the accident train. Matthews was present and able to provide this account to investigators at Eccles, but due to the nature of the accident, Crogsford was not. So investigators needed to look at the next best thing and speak to other eyewitnesses to understand what took place. And we'll start with the other driver at the head of the freight train, Matthews. He told investigators that he'd had an easy journey from the oil terminal as far as the outskirts of Manchester and had no difficulty seeing the Eccles distant signal, number 52, at caution on the approach to the area. As he approached the station, the Eccles semaphore horn signal was at danger, but it cleared just before he came to a stand at it. Because of this, he continued forward and stopped at the colour light section signal at red. This is the last signal in the Eccles section, the signal which the accident took place at. He secured his locomotive, making sure it was stopped and safe and climbed down 
walked to the telephone on the signal post and spoke to the signaller, who told him to pass the next signal at danger and then to proceed to the next signal at caution. He repeated the message back, climbed into his locomotive, released the brakes and started to move his train. Passing a signal at danger under instruction is perfectly safe and is part of everyday running of the railway when there are problems with the signalling equipment, like this. And it's something we're going to circle back round to when we explore Eccles. In any case, Matthews estimated that he had passed the signal by about half the length of his train and was travelling at about 10 miles an hour when he felt what he described as a terrific bump in the rear. On dropping his side window and looking back, he saw along the line a massive inferno on the track behind him. The investigator questioned Matthews on the visibility of the distant and home signals at Eccles, and he said that on the morning of the accident he could see them both quite easily, although he sometimes had had difficulty in the past in misty conditions. He'd had to lean forwards to see the home signal under the bridge on the approach to the station, and he told investigators that he agreed with comments he'd heard before, which others had raised, that the signal was badly sighted. This account was helpful as it explained the experience on the day from the standpoint of the freight train, but it was also important to explain what had happened on board the express train, and Matthews couldn't help with that. So for this, they turned to the guard who'd been travelling in the carriages of the passenger train, G.D. Gibbons. Before they left Liverpool, he'd gone to his brake van and carried out a satisfactory brake test from the rear of the train. So to his knowledge, there were no faults with the braking system of the train. He told me that the driver seemed to be completely normal and alert with no reason for concern for his well-being or fitness for work. The train had departed on time and walking through the train, he'd counted passengers, checked tickets and he reported that there were about 150 on board and that the miniature buffet in the fourth coach was quite busy. He thought there was no one travelling in the first coach and only two passengers in the second. So he headed back and he'd just reached the leading compartment of the rear coach when the train made a series of shuddering jerks and then stopped suddenly. As it stopped, he was thrown violently against the end of the coach and fell. He told investigators he picked himself up and went straight to his van, collecting his hive, his vest, his detonator and a track circuit operating clip. As he stepped off the train, he met a man who told him that they'd already called the emergency services. Then he saw the smoke and flames at the front of the train. He ran forward and climbed into what he thought was the third coach, calling out for people, but could see nothing in it because of the thick smoke. The smoke forced him to leave, then he protected the opposite line and climbed back in, walking back through the train, checking that all of his passengers were out. In fact, shortly after he got to the back of his van, he collapsed and was subsequently taken to hospital. The account of Gibbons sounds like there was no reason to be concerned about the fitness of Croxford on this morning, and this was indeed reflected in the comments of others who had seen him before he drove the train. Nobody had noticed any issues of concern as Croxford had waited for work in the mess room that morning. In fact, no real concerns in general were raised with his route knowledge, his competency, his ability to drive different classes of locomotive, or his disciplinary record. Which leaves us with a gap. If the train was doing what it should do, and the driver was competent, what led to him not stopping where he was meant to? Was there a fault with the signals? 
So just to paint this out, the signal sequence at Eccles for an approaching train from Liverpool looked like this. Shortly after the previous station at Patricroft, a driver would happen upon Echo Sierra 52. This is the Eccles semaphore up distance signal, and it's a semaphore signal, so that means it's a board, it's not colour light, it's a board which is raised at an angle for a clear aspect, about 45 degrees, and stays horizontal for a cautionary aspect. You know, it's a distant signal, so it doesn't tell the driver to stop, but it tells them to be prepared to stop at the home signal ahead, Echo Sierra 50. Echo Sierra 50 was also a semaphore signal, so that was proceed at 45 degrees angle, or danger, stop, horizontal. Following this, further down the line, we find Echo Sierra 51. This is the signal that Matthews had been held at, the one that he requested permission to pass. Echo Sierra 51 was different to the previous two because it's a colour light signal with three aspects, which means it can display proceed, caution, or danger all on its own. But on the morning in question, it was proceeding, it was showing danger, and Matthews had to ask for permission to pass it. The preceding signal before this section at Barton Moss was also a semaphore signal, and the two areas that we're talking about here, both signal boxes were worked under absolute block. So was all of this equipment working correctly on the day? Predominantly yes, with the exception of Echo Sierra 5-1, that colour light section signal that Matthews was stopped at. So I mentioned earlier on that he was instructed to pass the signal at danger, and in fact several trains were experiencing the same issue today. This signal was controlled by track circuits beyond it to make sure that the block wasn't occupied by another train, and there'd been workmen working down on the line there. As they'd moved pieces of track slightly to fit and repair the fish plates that joined the rails, they were inadvertently altering the voltage in the track circuits, so that block was intermittently showing occupied when it wasn't. And it's not a massive problem. Signalers can, as we've seen earlier, manually permit trains to pass the signal being erroneously held at danger in a safe manner, they give them permission to proceed, they have to proceed at a speed that they can safely stop in the distance that they can see. It's just more of an inconvenience than anything else, and it will really mess with your timetable, but it's a surmountable problem. Investigators also looked at the other two signals, Echo Sierra 52 and Echo Sierra 50, and while there were historically some wire faults with Echo Sierra 52, not quite lifting properly to the 45 degrees to signify it was off. Um, these had been rectified over the summer. The last question about whether or not Echo Sierra 50, the home signal at the station, had that been correctly showing a danger aspect? Well, that was accurately answered in the form of an eyewitness who'd been at the station. He'd been stood there when he witnessed a passenger train traveling through the station while the signal correctly displayed the danger aspect. He later observed the pall of smoke and didn't immediately make the link between the two. However, later on, once he'd heard what happened, he'd contacted the railway to pass across his eyewitness testimony. While the investigation showed that the train was working correctly, the signals were showing what they should have done and that the driver was fit for duty, that all leads us now into a bit of a confusing place. With all of these things going right, why didn't Croxford try to stop his train until it was far, far too late. There are three things we haven't yet considered. Now, each of these seems like small factors on their own, but taken together, 
they might just explain what caused this accident. Location, location, location. We've heard the phrase before many, many times and in many different circumstances. But there are three aspects of today's story to which location plays a crucial part. The first is the location of a safety system, which was in use by this time and remains key to the UK network today. AWS. AWS, or the Automated Warning System, fundamentally relies upon the presence of track-mounted magnetic ramps on the approach to signals. These magnets are used to provide an audible and visual reminder to drivers dependent on what aspect is displayed at the signal, with a bell for proceed and a horn to warn of caution, or a danger aspect. The best part of this process is when the horn sounds, the driver only has a matter of seconds to press a plunger to acknowledge the warning before the train's brakes automatically apply. A fantastic system, which exists to catch those times when a lack of concentration might have otherwise led to tragedy. And it is this key aspect which I'm leading up to. For the vast majority of the journey from Liverpool to this point, Croxford was driving his train through areas controlled with three or four aspect colour light signals, fitted with AWS. There was a gap in these around the outskirts of Liverpool, but the section immediately before the accident site had 19 signals, all of them with AWS, and Croxford will have been quite happily proceeding through the section with relatively clear running, getting those bells, bells, bells for every signal, say green, green, green. That is until the location of Barton Moss signal box just before Eccles. The next five signals from this point were all not fitted with AWS. So no little bell to tell you about your clear signal, and crucially no horn and no emergency brake associated with adverse aspects and them not being acknowledged. In the middle of this section without AWS, we find Echo Sierra 51, 50 and 52. Three signals which gave no added warning should a driver miss their presence or lose their bearings. One of them a home signal, which would display danger while Croxford drove his train right past it at line speed. The absence of AWS in this location was a fundamental aspect of this accident. We know that Croxford braked too late. 
Now, if he had lost his bearings or missed the signals for some reason, AWS might have snapped his attention back. Now, we know it's unlikely that he had a medical episode which rendered him unconscious as the train's brakes were applied. But if he had, if that had played a part in this, then the fact he didn't acknowledge the warning, AWS would have stopped the train then too. The first location here explains why at Eccles it was far worse at this location for Croxford not to obey signals or recognise them or even realise that they were there. But what about bringing us a reason for the omission? Well, the second location can bring us some potential answers there. There are many things to consider when you're designing a new signalling system. Not just the type of signals to use, but the, the distance to place them apart, whether they'll be manual or automatic. They're all very valid considerations, but they relate specifically to the, the technical, how do you want your signalling to work? There is another aspect of equal importance, and that is their physical location. Signals should adhere to some principles wherever possible. They should be to the left-hand side of the running rail, unless you can't get them there. They should be at the optimum height for visibility. They should be placed in a way that avoids cross-reading with other signals, so a driver can't see the line next to his signal and get confused about which is which. There is a whole area of the industry that focuses on this, and the process to get it right is called signal sighting. There is one really crucial element about location which investigators found could have come into play at Eccles, and that's how these signals are placed in relation to the environment around them, and how this can impact their visibility to drivers. Three years before the accident, a number of new industrial buildings had been built close to Patricroft Station, and they now sat directly behind the signal at the end of the platform. The buildings were painted yellow. Sounds like it might not be the biggest issue, it might not be a great aesthetic choice, but this signal was Echo Sierra 5.2, the Eccles distant semaphore signal. No prizes for figuring out now what colour the board of a distant semaphore signal is painted. It's yellow. So directly behind this yellow board was a yellow building. And when it comes to the ability for the human eye to see one object in front of another, contrast is key. It's a guiding principle in creating accessible spaces nowadays for people with visual impairments. But even the investigators in 1985 could see that this was not an ideal situation, calling in the report the new buildings a very poor background to the signal arm. And a train driver is, by trade, supposed to be fully aware of every signal, its location on the route that it drives, how it operates, where it controls. But clearly, this is not now a signal that jumps out from its surroundings, announcing whether it's a clear or danger. It feels a lot more like you would have to look for it. And we may also need to consider that these were signals that drivers weren't really used to being regulated by. Generally, an express like the one Croxford was driving would have a clear run through the area. So to come across Echo Sierra 5.2 at caution would certainly have been an exception rather than the norm. So we can understand how a driver maybe not paying the correct amount of attention might miss that distance. Clearly, he shouldn't have missed it. But we can appreciate that there are issues there now with the sighting, the background and visibility. But it's all not lost, is it? because Croxford could have seen the home signal at danger a little way down the line on the approach and brought his train to a stand. 
maybe a bit beyond the signal. He'd be in trouble for a signal passed at danger. There'd be lots of paperwork. He may have even got close enough to Matthew's train for it to be scary, but not into the rear of it. Except there were some issues with the visibility of this signal as well. The Eccles home signal, Echo Sierra 50, was situated on the Manchester end of the Eccles Up platform, and it could be seen by an approaching driver first through an old arch bridge structure at the western end of the station. So as driver approaches, you look through the bridge structure and see the signal at the end of the platform. The signal arm itself was carried on a cranked head, so it appeared to actually be centrally mounted on its post, and the investigators assumed that that was done to improve its view beneath the bridge. However, again, three years ago, construction work was taking place behind this signal, which had significant impact. There was a new brick-faced road bridge that was built to connect to that new motorway, and in the same way as with the distant, those red bricks formed a poor background to the red-painted signal arm, particularly when it was on the on position, so the signal is a red board, horizontal at danger, and behind it, is a brick structure with horizontal courses of bricks. So the arm appears to lie along a darker course of the bridge structure. Again, with an inattentive driver and no AWS to snap him back to reality, this is a signal that does not jump out and announce its presence and declare whether it's on or off. And we recognize through all of this that it was his job to look for these signals. But that loss of situational awareness isn't helped by the fact these signals are blending in. Now, they're both signals that were built in acceptable conditions, but developments later had severely impacted the efficacy of their placement and their design, so their location and their surroundings were no longer ideal. All of which brings us to our final location. The final way that this accident could have been made worse by the location that it took place. Shortly after the second of those missed signals, the line runs along the relatively new motorway leading into Manchester. And here I'm going to ask you a question. When you're hitting the M6 up through Shap, heading north towards Scotland, and a Pendolino runs past on the railway, are your eyes drawn to it? How about the M1 near the Watford Gap? Or, in fact, any other road where rails and tarmac run side by side? Of course we are. The similarity of speeds, the fact that it's quite infrequent that you end up almost racing a train. Your eyes are just drawn to it. Well, there's another theory which investigators think might explain why Croxford applied the brakes so late. Isn't it realistic that this is a process that works both ways? Having missed those semaphore signals, lost his situational awareness... Croxford may have been watching traffic on the adjacent motorway instead of the line ahead which he must have assumed was clear, and this might have accounted for his delay in applying the brake. On another stretch of line, Croxford might have gotten that brake in the second he saw a tail lamp of the freight, or just that little bit sooner, and while the collision might still have been inevitable, every second later that that happened meant the slower his train would have been travelling, the faster the freight, bringing the force of that collision down for every second earlier that that brake went in till a magical point where they wouldn't have even crashed. But, if, if, some buts, etc. That wasn't the case. 
But like I opened this section with, location, location, location. of the report laid the blame at Croxford's feet, stating that he was driving without due attention to the signals and having missed the Eccles up distant caution drove as if the home signal was cleared for his train. It then went on to say he must have also failed to see this latter signal for it was not until he was very close to the oil tank train that he made his first emergency brake application. It's impossible to fully state what happened in the cab of the Scarborough Express train that morning. Croxford is no longer around to either confirm or deny any of the facts or assumptions, nor, and it is important to remember this, defend himself. What was clear was the recommendations which came out of the report, and they related mainly to two areas. Firstly, the signals in question, that they were, unsurprisingly, to be fitted with AWS. This was a hole in an otherwise quite well-established area covered by the system, and it was important that the railway look to plug these gaps in short order to prevent similar occurrences from taking place. There was also a recommendation to improve the visibility of these signals against their backdrops, and some of this work had already taken place prior to the publication of the report. That home signal was replaced with a better version of itself to be more visible, and the bridge behind it was painted with white to provide a high contrast backing. While it wasn't to blame for the accident itself, the only reason any of this was able to take place was because of that work crew further down the line who were accidentally messing with track circuits and causing Echo Sierra 5-1 to revert to danger. There was a recommendation to inform these type of gangs that the work they were undertaking could impact on the signal system and that they should coordinate with the railway's operating and signalling teams prior to undertaking the work. My takeaway from this, however, is that it's one of railway's frustrating accidents. It was an avoidable catastrophe in the way that so many of these are, and you've heard me talk about things like this before, but this accident took place in 1984, and AWS was in place across vast swathes of the railway, a proven safety technology which has prevented countless accidents since it was brought in. But it wasn't in place here. And there are other areas, or there were other areas like this, across the network. This could possibly be excused with a technology brand spanking new just off the drawing tables of the British Rail Boffins, but it wasn't. If you've heard me talk about this before, you'll know that AWS has been around a bit longer. In fact, the first system to be put into wide use was developed in 1905 by the Great Western Railway and developed further up to the 40s and 50s, and following the tragic accident at Harrow and Wheelston, which we've covered in the past, it was decided that this system would be widely introduced across the national network, 
and work began to make that happen, which is fine and absolutely should have been the response to the accident at Harrow and Wheelstone where missed signals with no warning caused, well, the second worst accident we've ever seen. But Harrow and Wheelstone took place in 1952. The slow march of progress, eh? So that brings us now to where do I leave this episode in terms of final thoughts. The train that left Liverpool Lime Street on that December morning wasn't a commuter service serving the 9 till 5 crowd. It wasn't a capital to capital train carrying businessmen and important business. It was a service from the northern cities to the seaside. And because of something as simple as lapsed attention... 150 passengers were plunged into a fiery crash, a terrifying experience, generating traumatic memories instead of making happy ones on the sand. And we can't forget that for three unfortunate people, leading to a tragic and early end of their lives. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger, one that has admittedly been a long time coming. As I said in the past, please feel free to like, share, review, come interact with me on social media, Twitter or Facebook, and I'm still calling it Twitter because I can't be myself to say X. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. This week's music has been Notes to Self, Thread the Needle and the Unforgettable by Gavin Luke, Book of Maps by Franz Gordon, Exile by Lo Mimeo, The Orchard by Jacob Albon, and Modern Mysteries by Matilda Sconea Carlson. And finally, the closing credits of today's episode are Eventual Bloom by Rand Aldo. That leaves me to say now, until next episode, travel safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.